Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, or excuse me, 16 tonight. 1 Samuel chapter number 16, and uh, we'll jump right back into our series, A Tale of Three Rulers. Hope you've had a great week. Uh, I don't know about you, I am warm right now. Uh, is anybody else warm in the room? Or maybe it's just, okay. All right, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, somebody please do something about that. Um, but uh, somebody that has a box or a key or something, please help me uh, with that. That would be awesome. Uh, but First Samuel chapter 16 uh, tonight, First uh, Samuel 16, as we look back at our series, and we're going to turn a new chapter, and we see an, introdu- an introduction to a new Ruler. Remember, the series is a tale of three rulers. We've talked about Samuel and how he failed in a lot of areas, but he was still God's man for the time period. Uh, we look at Saul, and Saul uh, looked good on the outside, was a failure on the inside. Uh, and we're going to see that David, while Saul looked kingly, didn't have any qualifications from within. Uh, on the outside, David didn't look kingly, uh, but David was qualified by having a pure heart. And it goes to show that when God speaks to Samuel, uh, that God is more concerned with what he sees on the inside than what others see on the outside. Think about that. God is more concerned with what he sees on the inside than what others see on the outside. Uh, Saul, uh, good on the outside, horrible on the inside. Uh, You think about David, uh, not really much to look at. It was a good-looking kid, uh, but not kingly like Saul was. And yet God looked within and said, he's the man. He's the one that I'm going to use. He's the one that is going to be uh, the next leader. Because you think about it, you can fake good behavior. You can't fake a pure heart. You, can't, uh, you can fake pure good behavior, but you can't fake a pure heart. So if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write down, number one, the sorrow that's mentioned, the sorrow. Let's look at verse number 1, 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. This is now the third reference uh, to the emotional state of Samuel in regards to Saul's failed leadership. Uh, remember in chapter 15 and verse number 11, uh, God speaking, and it said, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and not perform my commandments. And it says, And it grieved Samuel. There's first emotional connection. Uh, then we see uh, he was, Saul was confronted for his failure in verse number 35. And it says, uh, Nevertheless, middle of the verse, Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. Uh, so grieved for Saul. Uh, Then mourning for Saul, and then we get to verse number 1, God points it out and says, how long are you going to keep this up? Uh, How long are you going to mourn for the one who rejected me? It really shows the humanity of Samuel. Uh, The fact that he was indeed concerned, connected to Saul and the heartache. But it also gives us a pattern that we see in the New Testament that Paul mentions in Romans chapter number 12. It says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 and 16, it says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. To men of low estate. 
And, you know, we should mourn and grieve and hurt when a brother or sister in Christ is hurting. Uh, when someone has failed, when uh, it should bother us. It shouldn't be just kind of ho-hum and, oh, well, you know, uh, if they had more faith, God would have uh, protected them. Uh, it should hurt us. Uh, we're a family. You know, if something happens to your mom, dad, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, grandma, and grandpa, uh, it affects you. Uh, and it should be the same way in the body of Christ. We're a family together. Uh, but our focus should be on restoration. And not just, oh, well, let's just kick them while they're down. Uh, because we're notorious for shooting our own wounded. You know, that, uh, that uh, brother or sister in Christ fails in an area, maybe it's public sin or private sin, and, uh, we ostracize them. We make them feel like they don't belong anymore, uh, they're not good enough, or uh, maybe they don't live up to our expectation of who they are, who they're supposed to be. And all of a sudden, we want to distance ourselves from them. And there are certain situations where uh, that is a consequence. Uh, someone uh, does something heinous or uh, illegal and we, hey, we have to put some distance just to be able to protect the body. But there should also be a feeling of concern for their well-being going forward. Uh, there should be a feeling of, all right, how are we going to restore that brother or sister back into the body? Uh, how are we going to deal with this issue? Not sweep it under the rug, uh, but let's call it what it is. Let's call it sin and let's deal with it biblically. And then let's talk about, all right, after that process has taken its place, how can we restore? Uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 and 2. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. It's easy for us to bear one another's blessings. Hey man, that's that, let me ride in that new car. Let me go in and you know get that new car smell, you know, all that stuff. And let me let me enjoy the blessings with you. Live vicariously through somebody else. We're not really good on that bearing one another's burdens part. Let's be consistent. If we're gonna live out Christ's love for others, uh, that includes when others fail. Uh, that includes when others sin. Uh, that includes when others uh, are hurting. Uh, when others uh, go in a direction that is unbecoming of a believer. Just like Samuel grieved for Saul. Uh, but just like Samuel grieves for Saul, Samuel also had a job to do. And God said, how long? Uh, how long, Samuel, are you going to continue to mourn for the one who's rejected me from following uh, me or rejected, uh, who has been rejected for follow, not following me. Uh, see, God speaks to him and says, uh, Samuel, the time has come. You got to move on. Uh, we can help someone, uh, but there comes a point when we have to say, hey, it's time for you to start walking on your own. It's time for you to start uh, doing these things by yourself. And uh, that accountability time comes to an end. It's time to get restored. It's time for you to uh, be doing this on your own. It's time for me to uh, take the training wheels off or let go of your hands so that you can do this on your own. You've got to move on. And God is saying, Samuel, it's time for you to move on. It's time for you to do what I need you to do at this point. Uh, we have to move on. And uh, God finally gives him a name. He says in verse number one, I will send thee to Jesse, Jesse uh, the Bethlehemite. So not only does he give him a name, a family name, he gives him a place to go to. Uh, gives him a name and a place. But there's an element of trust here. He doesn't give him the person to anoint. He says, I'm going to give you the family name and I'm going to give you the place to go, but 
you're still going to have to trust me. You're still going to have to trust me. Uh, he didn't have his name. He still had to rely on the Lord. And when we help others, you think about how we're supposed to help others and bear one another up. Uh, sometimes we don't get a name. Sometimes we have to rely on the Lord's guidance. You ever been in church or uh, maybe riding down the road and the Lord puts somebody on your mind and on your heart and, man, I, I just can't get them off my mind. I, I want to reach out and check on them. You know, it's very rare that we have a, a neon sign over someone's head that says, encourage them. You ever notice that? That's very rare, all right? Uh, that never happens. Uh, but uh, very rare that that takes place. We have to follow the Lord's leading. We have to follow his leading. It would be easy if we uh, were given a name. Hey, here's the person as you come into church tonight. Here's the person's name that you get to encourage while you're here. It would be easy. But it would require no leading of the Holy Spirit. would require no leaning on the Lord for wisdom and guidance. Uh, would require nothing. But are we sensitive to the Lord's leading for those who may be hurting around us? Are we in tune with him so that when he speaks and says, hey, that person needs encouragement, that person needs help, uh, that sister needs a phone call, that brother uh, needs a text, uh, that sister, that family needs a card this week. Are we in tune to his leading and are we following him? First Peter chapter 4 verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When you were lost, what did you need? Grace. We didn't want justice. That's what we deserved. We deserved justice. We got grace. And that's a blessing right there. But when someone's hurting, what do they need? Grace. Uh, when someone has sinned, what do they need? Grace. When someone feels alone, what do they need? Grace. And if you're a believer tonight, you have received grace. And Peter says we're to extend grace. That, that you have been shown, if you've received the gift, minister that to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As a good steward, we are to effectively take care of, handle out, pass out, be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And it says here, we're entrusted with the grace of God. It cost me nothing to walk up to somebody and say, hey, I'm praying for you this week. And mean it. And mean it. Uh, not one of those, well, I'm going to pray for you this week. Oh, Lord bless them so I don't forget. Uh, you know, mean it. I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm going to check on you. Here for you. And mean it. But when was the last time we came to church looking for someone to encourage? When was the last time on the way to church, Lord, Lord, show me somebody that I can be a blessing to? Not, not where I'm coming to church to where I, I want to get something out, but, Lord, where I can give and I can invest in the life of someone else. Uh, Lord, speak to my heart. And when you speak to me, help me to encourage and help me to respond. Uh, Lord, help me to be faithful to listen to you as you show me who to encourage. When's the last time we prayed that way? When's the last time you said, Lord, help me to be a blessing? When I pull on the parking lot, give me a name of somebody that I can be a blessing to at church who, who needs grace, who needs encouragement, who needs a blessing. Samuel sorrowing, sorrowing, and God says, move on. It's time to move on. It's time to go to Bethlehem now, Samuel, because I need you to anoint the next leader. And then we see, number two, the specifics that are mentioned. The specifics, verse two, and Samuel said, how can I go? Now think about this logistically. Saul knew that he was going to be refused as 
the king. Saul knew that he had rejected the Lord. Saul knew that he had turned away. But how would Saul feel if he found out that Samuel has taken a road trip to anoint the next king? Uh, Samuel already knew that Saul's behavior was erratic and he was uh, making emotionally led decisions. He cared for Saul, but did Saul care for Samuel? Uh, Was there a feeling of connection? And we don't know how much time passes in between uh, chapter 15 and chapter 16, but if Saul continued down the same path, it was only going to get worse. Only going to get worse along the way. And the Lord gives him a reason, an excuse. Look at verse number 2. He says, Samuel, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice. Hey, you've got a good reason. Uh, They did not have the temple yet. Remember, Solomon is the one who builds the temple. That's still uh, two monarchies away. But when you see, he says, here's a reason. They had altars set up along the road and along the path in different towns because they didn't have a common place yet to come and worship the Lord together. So this was totally understandable. Hey, I'm just walking down the road. I'm going to Bethlehem to worship. Okay, no biggie. Verse 3, and call Jesse to the sacrifice. Uh, Not only are you to go to a certain place, you're to bring a certain person. And I will show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. There's the trust. Verse 4, And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? You think about this man of God. They, they, had, heard, they had heard the story about Agag. Um, chapter 15, uh, how that Samuel was the one who did the, the ultimate hibachi show and uh, chops up a gag and, uh, in front of everybody. and uh, They knew about this. They had heard about this. So why is Samuel in our town? Uh, we know that Bethlehem is not on the path that uh, Samuel normally takes from uh, Gibeah to uh, Ramah. Uh, Bethlehem's not on the path. So why is he here? But not only is Samuel careful to go where God Led, he's careful to bring who God said to get. Verse 5, and he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me. Hey, hey I'm going to go over here and worship. Why don't you guys come? And look at end of verse 5. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. Going to the place where he's supposed to be, getting the people he was supposed to get, and now the stage is set. And Samuel did what Saul was expected to do in verse number 4. Samuel did that which the Lord spake. Remember, that was the complaint. Uh, He has rejected me, Samuel. Uh, He has broken the commandment. He has not done what I told him to do. Uh, James 1 verse 22, we looked at the verse last week. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Remember what was significant about the first church in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42? What stood out about them? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And we talked in uh, Sunday night growth group in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the importance of good doctrine. Uh, But what did they do? They continued in the apostles' doctrine. You know what they did? They followed what God said. They did what God said. Said, And because Samuel obeyed the word of the Lord, he put himself in a position where he would see something that he never would have seen otherwise. Let me say that again. 
that because he obeyed the word of the Lord, he put himself in a position to see something that he never would have otherwise. Are you putting yourself in a position where you will see things that you wouldn't get to see otherwise? When we obey the commands of the Lord, when God leads us and we follow His Word, He puts us in position where we see things that we wouldn't see if we weren't obeying Him. Obedience yields blessing. Disobedience eliminates blessing. When we obey, God blesses and we get to see His hand at work when we obey. We see the the sorrow, we see the specifics that God gives. And then number three, we see the speculation. The speculation. The very first mention of Samuel focusing on what he saw instead of what God said. Look at verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he, Samuel, looked on Eliab. All right, He looks, he sees this young man, sharp guy oldest, strongest, and he relied on what he saw instead of what God said. The problem, what he saw wasn't God's will. What he saw wasn't God's will. Have you ever thought about what your life would look like if you simply made decisions only on what you saw? What would your life look like? You might be married to somebody different. Uh, You might work somewhere different. You might live somewhere different. I'm only going to focus and I'm going to make decisions based on what I see. I can tell you what kind of life that's going to be. That's not a life led and lived by faith. Faith is stepping out. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, Faith is taking the first step when you don't see the whole staircase. And when we take that step of faith, not knowing where it leads, but we take a step of faith, you can't always see the end result. Uh, Faith, uh, by faith, Hebrews chapter 11, all the people by faith. And some even died in faith without seeing the end result. Are, Are we willing to take those steps? If we look based on what we see, remember Proverbs 14 verse 12, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man. Hey, this job, man, it looks good on paper, and I'm going to make more money, and uh, I'm going to be able to provide more for my family. And this is it because it looks right. But on the inside, you're getting torn up, and God's saying, no, 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 that's not right. What do we follow? Do we follow what we see, or do we follow what we hear, that still, small voice? Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not in thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Be not wise in our own eyes, our own understanding. Don't take wisdom and hope in what we see. And why was this bad? Because Samuel assumed based on what he saw. Remember, Saul looked good on the outside, head and shoulders above every man. He looked like a king. And the people saw him and, oh, he is the king. He's he's bigger than everybody. He's exactly what we expected, what we pictured, yet he blew it. He was chosen. Maybe God would do all that again. 
It's interesting what Eliab's name means. And when you look at Eliab, remember, compound these together, Samuel looks good. What about his name? His name means, my God is my father. Man, he hears the name, he sees and says, man, this this is the guy. This has to be the king because his name sounds good. He has a spiritual name and Saul's name meant anointed and all of these different things. Maybe the Lord would use a, a young man whose name pointed to the right place. But as much as it sounded good, it wasn't God's will. And things can sound so good, church family. That doesn't mean that it's God's will. Would we rather have that easy, cushy life without God's blessing? Or would we rather have God's blessing and live a life of faith? A life where we depend every single day on Him. That easy life without Him or that maybe more difficult life with Him. Which is more important? Samuel needed refocusing. He needed to be recentered. What happens in verse number 7? God speaks. God speaks and says, hey Samuel, let me teach you a principle. And it's the principle that we all know. We've heard it. Samuel hears the Lord speaks. Look not on his countenance. Hey, what you're seeing, don't focus on what you see, Samuel. Or on his height. Big guy. Strong. Firstborn. Because I have refused him. He's not the one, Samuel. For the Lord sees not as man seeth, but for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees what we can't see. God sees within. It shows us that God sees and looks and sees what no one else sees and gauges his ability to use us on the things that no one else can see. Now let that sink in. God gauges his ability to use us based on the things that only he can see, not what others can see. Oh, pastor, did you hear that person sing? Did you hear them play? Did you hear that message? Did you hear them teach? Did you uh, see what they did? What if God says, but I've refused them? Everything we see on the outside could be connected to the flesh. Only the things on the inside, those are the things that God prioritizes. Could God use your life based on the things that no one else can see? And could God use your life based on what only He knows about you? Your heart. William Hendrickson said, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't swear. Hallelujah, I'm a Christian. If a telephone pole could talk, it might say the same thing. Then he said this, But a series of zeros do not make a Christian. A million negatives do not produce even one positive. We may pity the man with with an empty mind, but what about the person with the empty heart? The empty heart. I remember Paul told the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 through 29 he said for you see your calling brethren how that not many wise men after the flesh not many mighty not many noble are called but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise 
Uh, and God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised that God chosen. Yea, the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. No one stands before God one day and says, God, man, you are so lucky to get me. Aren't you glad, God, that I'm in your family? You know, uh, humble and not ashamed of it. You know, uh, humble and not, not too proud to admit it. Uh, but God is looking for someone to, to use who won't fight him over the credit. Who won't fight him over the glory. So he starts with Eliab. Uh, My God is father. Rejected. And then he goes on in verse number 8. Jesse called Abinadab. Next in line, Abinadab's name means my father is noble. Hey, that sounds good, God. Rejected. Then he goes to Shammah. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Uh, Each one of these rejected. Remember, it's the right family. It's the right place. But all the sons, one by one, rejected. Rejected. Verse 10, again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. God has not given me validation on any one of these. Maybe Samuel at this point is saying, hey, God, God, are you right? Or, or am I at the right place? Am I at the wrong place? God, did you lead me astray? Did you lead me to uh, the wrong place? Surely I shouldn't have to deal with all these problems if I'm following the Lord. Following the Lord is not an easy life. It's not promised in the Bible. Remember, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, it involves carrying the cross. And nobody picked up a cross and carried it for fun. And we don't do that today either. We pick up our cross to follow. We're not carrying a cross for fun. We're carrying a cross to follow him. Because he said, if you're going to follow me, pick up a cross. It involves a life of faith. And God is not interested in our comfort as much as he's interested in our obedience. Our obedience. You say, Pastor, God wants me to be comfortable. If that's true, then why did Jesus die the most horrific death imaginable? And you would think that he would want his son to have a better experience on earth than us. And Jesus died. Horribly. So when we look at the way he expects us to live, don't expect a life full of roses. Because that's not a biblical life. When we look at this reality, Jesse is sinking in. All of these boys have been rejected by God. Now think about the brevity of that and the impact. God looks at my sons and says, not good enough. What a testimony. <laughs> I think all my sons are great, Samuel. Pick any one of them. And God tells Samuel, not good enough. Not good enough. Uh, you know, you know, what would, would that motivate you at all as a parent to do anything about that? Uh, what would you, how would you feel if the preacher comes to your house and says, nah, not good. No, not good parenting. Not good enough, Jesse. 
All right, Mrs. Jesse, you got some work to do. Uh, how would that make you feel? Remember, Psalm 127, verse 3 and 4 says, Children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. We see later on that Jesse is a spiritual guy. It's not Jesse. It's not his inability to lead as much as it is the direction his kids are headed. In chapter 17, we'll see that Eliab had his own issues of jealousy, contempt, pride. Uh, It was very obvious in chapter 17 he's not the right choice. But here it's hard to see that. But when we lead our homes, what what direction are our kids pointed? Uh, What direction are they going? Uh, What are we doing as parents to point them in the right direction, to aim them as that arrow in Psalm 127? Are you raising your kids to release them in the right direction? Are we pointing them the right way? We see the stamp in verse number 12 and 13. Uh, All of this speculation, all of these things building up now to a stamp. And he asks in verse number 11, uh, hey, is this all your kids? Uh, Surely there's got to be more of them somewhere. And verse number 11, uh, we see that Jesse says, oh yeah, there's one more. But he's just the sheep. Uh, He tends the sheep. He's the shepherd. Uh, He's the the watchman of the sheep. He's just the little kid. Why do you want him? Uh, he's nobody. In, in effect, he's saying he wasn't even worth calling to the meeting. Jesse is saying this. Look at verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Ruddy. He, he looked sharp. He, looked, uh, he was a plain guy, but it tells us in verse number 12, with all of a beautiful countenance. means handsome. He was a rough but yet handsome kid. Uh, rough, a hard worker, goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is he. This is the one, Samuel. This is the one to anoint. Uh, There's this one in the field. There's one left. And most people believe that he's a teenager here. If you start at the end of David's life, David lived to be 70 years old. And you work backwards, he was 30 years old when he began reigning as king. Most commentators believe his timeline from the time that he was anointed to the time he actually took the throne was around 17 years. 15 to 17 years. If that is true, David right here is barely a teenager. And yet God says, that's the next king. Remember we mentioned last week, age has nothing to do with spirituality. Absolutely nothing. It's very possible that the next leaders of our church are sitting right over here in this section on Sunday mornings. And that's what we pray for, by the way. The next leaders, uh, the next deacons at Crossroads Baptist Church are sitting over there. Uh, The next senior leadership, the next executive team, uh, the next staff members are in the nursery on Sunday mornings. Hey, because all of us were there at one time. And that's the way we need to look at the future. That's the way we need to invest in the future. Uh, We are cultivating relationships. We are teaching young people how to be the next 
leaders at Crossroads Baptist Church. But how about we take that from another perspective? How about we look at every person who comes in the door like that? How about we look at the people who are here just for a short amount of time? And we cultivate and we work with them and we teach and we train and we invest so that if they ever leave this place, they're better for being at this place. We sit in a perfect opportunity with a medical facility right in our backyard that has a three-year program. And kids come in, they're here for a couple years, they come to our church, and then they go somewhere else. We could sit back and say, man, it would be awesome for us to get all these people. For what effect? Uh, We are training missionaries. Think about it. We are training workers for other churches. Uh, We are launching them, sending them. We get them. We work with them, they serve here, they uh, grow here, and then they leave here better for being here. That is awesome, church. That is awesome. The fact that God allows, you you think about the impact and the weight, God allows us to invest in their life. God allows us the opportunity to speak into a small portion of their life. We better make it count. We better make it count. That should be our focus, our intent. Whether we have them six months, six years, or 60 years, we need to be dead set on investing well. Investing well in the lives of young people. You've got right here this parent in Jesse making king-sized decisions for David. But God wanted something different. And just a challenge, don't try to hold back your children from what God might want them to do. Remember, Jesse is saying, no, not good enough. And God saw the little kid out in the field saying, we're going to wait on him because he's the one. Uh, Remember, our kids aren't our kids. Don't hold on to things that don't belong to you. Because... Those children that God has entrusted to us, they belong to Him. They're His. They belong to Him, not us. So let's steward hearts well. And Samuel requests this audience with David. They wait on him. He arrives and he says, it's him. Anoint him. We see that this is just the teenager. Which shows us that God is not in a rush here. He knows that he's not going to sit on the throne at 13. God knows that. But nobody else does. Nobody else knows that. God is not in a hurry. Neither is David. David's not saying, I want to go to the palace right now. David's not in that mentality. But we live in a rushed society. We want everything right now. Think about the fact that a tree, you can't rush growth of a tree. You can plant it. Or you think about a seed. You plant it. You water it. You cultivate it. You don't come out tomorrow expecting to get fruit from it. It takes time. You have to be cultivating it. You can stand and watch it. You can talk to it. You can yell at it. You can scream at it to get to hurry up. Won't change anything. It takes time. And growth always takes time. We've done a lot of damages as the church, not as a church, 
as the church by expecting growth too quickly. Hey, I expect that person who just got saved last Sunday to come in next, next Sunday and uh, he doesn't smoke and he doesn't drink and he doesn't chew and he doesn't run with those that do. And, uh, he, he looks the part and he, I mean, he's got a tie on and he's got the right haircut and he, all these different things. We expect that immediately. That's not how God works. Or we can give a list. Hey, if you need to do this and this and this and this and this so that we approve of you. And that's not in the Bible either. Or you can read your Bible and walk with God, and God will lead you. And by the way, when God speaks to you about anything, do what He says. And when God speaks and someone obeys, they're a whole lot more prone to keep doing it rather than to appease us. James 1.4, but let patience have her perfect work. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 27, verse 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, he shall strengthen thy heart. G. Campbell Morgan said, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. I'm following his authority. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. If I'm doing something for the Lord and he shifts direction on me, or he tells me to do something else, I'm going to do it. And then third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Now, I'm going to be faithful, but I'm not going to move until God moves. I'm not going to advance until God tells me, go. I'm going to be faithful. We see lastly tonight the spirit that's mentioned. Verse 14, Samuel anoints David to be the next king. And then we see the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now Saul anoints David, then he leaves. Uh, we don't know how long the timetable is here in between verse 13 and 14. Uh, but we know that the spirit of the Lord rested on Saul and then leaves Saul. And then all of a sudden it says an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Verse 15, Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Now, what in the world? It leads us to ask this question. Is God leading good and evil here? Is God allowing these things? What's, what's going on? You can make an argument, but remember, we see James 1.13. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. 1 John 1.5. Then this is the message which you have heard of him, declaring to you that God is light and him is no darkness at all. So all of a sudden you've got this dilemma. Which one is it? If God can't tempt with sin, doesn't have sin, then how can he send evil? The answer is found in cause and effect. Cause and effect. Think about when the Spirit of the Lord is present in your life, or excuse me, when the Spirit of the Lord isn't evident and present in your life, the flesh is present. And your flesh is not good. Your flesh is evil. So when the Spirit of the Lord is absent, the Spirit of evil is present. When the Spirit of the Lord is absent, the Spirit of evil is present. Uh, you have to consider that the people believed God's hand was behind all the experiences of life. Have you ever heard somebody say, why would God let that happen? God, think about, God gets blamed for what he permits to happen. Because God allowed that, it's his fault. It's his fault. 
God didn't make Adam and Eve sin in the garden. That was their choice. God doesn't teach you how to sin as an infant. That's our choice. We are sinners by our very nature. That's our choice, not God's choice. But when we look at this spirit of evil, it's not that God sends the evil, but that his spirit is no longer on Saul. So we look here, verse 16, Now our Lord doth command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who's a cunning player on a harp, and it come to pass that the evil spirit from God is upon thee. He shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well. Now, all of a sudden, Saul is in this dilemma, this feeling of something's off. I, I don't have peace. I don't have joy. I don't have comfort in my spirit anymore. It's gone. And so... What does he need? He needs comfort. Their answer could have been, Saul just talked to the Lord. That didn't happen. Saul wasn't listening to God. So they search and find this young man who was a good harp player, and his name is David. Now think about the irony of this. This is Saul's replacement, and Saul doesn't know it. This is Saul's replacement, and David knows it. And David's not going to say a word. But also think about the impact and the preparation and the length that God is willing to go. What better training could David receive for being the next king than to be in the presence of the king? God puts David right where he needs to be. He gets firsthand knowledge. Saul develops a love for David, becomes his armor bearer, which means he's close to Saul. All of this is preparing the way for him to be the next king. And Saul doesn't know it. David doesn't understand it. Why? Pick somebody else. I might say something that I shouldn't say or talk about the anointing that I don't want to mention. Yet God brings the smallest details of our lives into play to prepare us for what's ahead. God uses David in this setting to help prepare him for the future. What better way than to put him in Saul's presence? But those little things that happen that God, those little details that God brings into our life, do we recognize that they're from him? Do we just say, oh man, that's what a coincidence. Or do we recognize that that's God leading in ways that only he could lead? Not us, but God. God working in our lives. We know that all things, Romans 8, 28, work together. Work together. You know, if you were to take a cup of flour by itself and a cup of sugar and uh, eggs by themselves and um, all of these and vanilla flavoring by itself and all of these things and you were to separate them out and eat them individually we would probably look at you and say there's something wrong with you nobody's going to go and say man i just i got a hankering for a cup of flour tonight for dinner that's not normal but you put all those things together and you work them together and it becomes something good now you put that all of those elements in the heat and get it hot put it in the oven, and you allow it to bake, 
and you get a cake or muffins or whatever you want to make. But all of those things have to be worked together for them to become good. And it's easy for us to look at the individual elements of our life and say, this is not good. But God is taking all of those elements and he is working them together for good. For good. And what's his ultimate purpose? So that we would look more like Jesus. Verse 29, Romans 8, 29. Uh, he predestinated us to be, become conformed to the image of his son. His desire before we even existed was that we would end up looking like Jesus. That is his process and his plan. But is that what we desire? Is that our goal? Is that we would conform ourselves. We would decide, I'm going to carry that cross. I'm going to follow. I'm going to listen so that I can look like Jesus. That is his goal for our lives. But is that what we hope to become? Father, please bless. Lord, help us to apply your word to our heart and life. Lord, please use the life of David. Lord, we've seen Samuel and Lord, we've seen how you've used him up to this point. We've seen Saul and how great potential and, Lord, just utter failures along the way. Lord, we see David in his life now and how you call him out as a man who's pursuing you after your own heart. Lord, as just a teenager, Lord, help us to see that you see great potential if we'll simply pursue your heart. Lord, I ask that you please help us, strengthen us, be with us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer here in just a minute.